23, and centering our attention and words we find from verse 39 through to verse uh, 43. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. These words. There are two strands of thought brought before, well, three strands of thought that we can look at here tonight. First and foremost, we have here a man converted at the 11th hour, the malefactor on a cross alongside Jesus. Secondly, we can consider the means that were used to bring him to the point of conversion. And thirdly, the answer that he received to his request. These three portions and in that order. First and foremost, then, a man who was converted at the 11th hour. And uh, just one or two points here concerning him. This was a wicked man. He's spoken of as a, a thief, but he was much more than that. He would be the equivalent of what we would call today a serial killer. And he was converted. Converted to the 11th hour. Now, there's the danger that when, that when we hear of something like that, we say, well, I'm not quite as bad as that man. But there, but for the grace of God, go you. And there, but for the grace of God, go I. Heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But for the restraining grace, common grace, sometimes it's called, the Lord applies upon us. This would be our lot also, and worse. We would be found indeed in a lost hell. So there is no room for us to glorify self in any way in comparison with this poor, admittedly wicked sinner. question arises concerning him was he did he rail did he was he railing against Jesus in the early part of the cross alongside his fellow 
manufacturers. We have an account of this incident in the gospel according to Matthew, I think in chapter 27, and another account in the gospel according to Mark chapter 15. In both of these um, gospels, we are told that the two thieves railed upon Jesus on the cross. But when we come to this gospel according to Luke, that we've just been reading, and verse 39, you notice it says, and one of the malefactors which were hung railed on him, saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, and so on. So there's two opinions on this matter. Some say that what we have in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark is a figure of speech. I think it's called knowledge, but that doesn't matter. That it's a figure of speech and that it operates something like this, that um, sometimes a plural uh, a plurality is, is applied to what is a singular subject. Like, for example, uh, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Well, the ark came to rest on one mountain. But there you have a plurality referred to what is a singular. You get the same thing in, in the cross itself, uh, where you get um, the soldiers run uh, to obtain. Uh, um, paraphrasing, they run to obtain vinegar to give to Jesus. Well, it would be one soldier who would run to get that vinegar, not a whole host of soldiers. So there's again, sometimes you get a plurality used where it is just one, a figure of speech applied like that. And some say that that's what we have in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And that when we come to Luke, we are told that it was, well, no, there's no mention of the two having railed upon him, but just one. The other viewpoint of, is that it's quite possible, indeed very possible, that um, this man um, was one who railed alongside his fellow um, criminal. Uh, that, he, that, he was, that they were both railing against Jesus in the early part of the cross. But that a change took place in his life. And, when, and as a result, that was a sudden change, and that he then could speak to his fellow, he could rebuke his fellow criminal. We indeed justly, but this man hath done nothing amiss. So there's two opinions. I don't know which, I don't think it's an area for dogmatism, but in my own opinion, for what it is worth, is that he was one who railed at the beginning alongside his fellow criminal against Jesus. We find that, uh, we find uh, there's a poem, I, I forget the name of it, but there's a poem that speaks of one's coming, one coming to a, to, to a, to a preacher, to a, to the, to a, the 
preaching of the gospel and coming into it, they came to scoff and they remained to pray. Well, isn't that possible here as well, that this man was scoffing and railing alongside his fellow criminal and that the Lord changed him, that he remained to pray. I leave it with you. There's the two opinions. And we can only, we cannot be dogmatic. And still speaking upon this man who was converted at the 11th hour, notice it was the 11th hour. And there's the encouragement there to those of us with gray hair and uh, on the borders of eternity and still out of Christ to persevere in seeking the Lord. There's also a warning to us. This, there, there were two men across, two men, two men, two men alongside Jesus. One was saved and the other wasn't, 11th hour or not. So the teaching is not to procrastinate. Procrastination is the thief of time and a thief of souls. The teaching is to be seeking what it is yet called today, to be called lost in with the offer of salvation that is there in Christ Jesus to you as a sinner in need of salvation. Well, that's all I want to bring out in the first point. A man saved at the 11th hour. Now, let's consider, secondly, <clears throat> the means that were used for his salvation. And the first means that was used here was that a sermon was preached to him, preached in his hearing. Not literally, as you might have in a church here, a minister right going up to the pulpit, reading from the word and preaching from the word. Not literally in that sense, a sermon preached to him, but a sermon preached to him in the sense that a message from God was delivered to him concerning his soul's welfare. Neither is it, uh, it wasn't literally then a, a sermon in the way that we, we're acquainted with. Um, it's not either a sermon in the sense that we sometimes speak, well, we, we correctly speak of the cross as being um, a, a throne where Jesus reigned supremely over death and sin and Satan, or where, where the cross is spoken of as an altar, where Jesus, as the great priest, offered himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, or the cross spoken of as a pulpit, where the greatest sermon that was ever preached was preached. The sermon that's preached there on the cross, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Speaks of the holy love of God. No, it's not in that sense either that we speak of the cross as being a pulpit, as being a, a, the sermon that's preached here. It's not the cross per se. It is the whole scene of the cross that becomes the pulpit, that becomes the sermon here. The whole, the whole what's, what's there, the two, the two men, on, on, on the, the, Jesus on the cross, the two men alongside him, and the crowd, and the cries, all of it constitutes what is in effect a message from God that we can speak of as a sermon that was preached in the hearing of this man. And it's being preached, as it were, in your hearing and mine here again tonight. So a sermon was preached in his hearing. And the text of that sermon was, well, it was written on the cross in big, bold letters in Greek and Hebrew and Latin, all the languages of the known world at that time, a text that was to all the world indeed. This is the King of the Jews. That was the text. And how was this sermon developed? Well, it was developed, first of all, in the responses of Jesus to the taunts, to the catcalls, to the derisive cries that emerged from the crowd towards him as he there hung on the cross. The response of Jesus to these constituted a word from God to this poor sinner. First of all, in the response that he did nothing. He was taken as a, as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. That was the first response. Silence in the face of all these revilings. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. There was a speaking there in this sermon. And then there was this response also, more positively, towards those who were so dealing with him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then there was the development of the sermon in this sense also. The word of God was spoken spoken quite unintentionally by those who spoke it. They didn't, they, didn't mean to, they didn't mean it to be the word of God, but it was. Sometimes the word of God can be spoken by bad men. Sometimes even unregenerate men in the pulpit can speak the word of God, and it becomes the means of their own conversion. Happened with Chalmers. Amazingly. But... Um, this word was spoken, 
the word of God spoken quite unintentionally. Didn't seek to give God the glory on this matter at all, but it was spoken by the crowd nevertheless. He saved others. He saved others. The taunt, of course, went, went along with that himself. He cannot save, but he saved others. And the Holy Spirit was able to take that word of truth and apply it, despite the fact that it came from evil men. And the same thing is there. Um, I forget which verse it is, but uh, it's, it's the claim that Jesus had. And they were saying he said that he was the son of God. He said that he was the Christ, the son of God. But they were saying, they were, they were, they, they, these words were coming from them. He is the Christ, the son of God. They meant it as a, 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 a claim that he made, which is untrue. But it nevertheless was truth. It's the truth of God that was spoken unintentionally by those enemies of the cross. Enemies of Jesus, but the word of God, nevertheless, and the spirit of the Lord, able to take that word and to apply it savingly in the soul of this man. So you see, there was the development of the sermon then in the responses of Jesus to the taunts. First of all, negatively, he remained silent, he reviled not again. Then amazingly, that wonderful prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then it was there in the word of God spoken unintentionally. He saved others. He said he was the son of God, that he is the Christ. That's the sermon then. That is what you have, the text and the development of it in the presence of this poor sinner alongside Jesus on the cross. That's the first part of the, the first means that we can see that is used towards this man's conversion. He heard a sermon preached in his hearing. The second thing that's there, second means that says he reflected he reflected upon that sermon. He put it, he, 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 he considered what was there said before. He considered, for example, how is it that he can remain silent in the face of such evil derision. How is it that he can show such kindness of prayers to those who are doing him so much despite? Is it possibly true that he is the son of God? Is it, is it true that he saved others? Is he the Christ? You see, he reflected Undoubtedly, these thoughts were passing through his mind. And it's important that we reflect on what we hear 
when we come as we do to sermons of the word of God. That we should be like the Bereans. Remember, they're mentioned in Acts chapter. I forget which chapter, chapter 11, chapter 17, I think, and verse 11. And uh, I quote from you, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were true or not. This they had an open mind concerning what they heard. They searched what they had heard. They put it through their, they put it through the process of their own thoughts. They considered, they reflected. And that is an important part of the hearing of the word of God. It's not just a matter of I've done my bit, the sermon is over, and now we can talk about this and that and forget about it. We are to consider, we are to reflect, we are to be open-minded, we are to search the scriptures. Is this the truth? That is a responsibility that belongs to us. But there's a third means that comes into play. And that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit took what was set before him and effected a change in this man's life. A change that we speak, that scripture speaks of as regeneration, being born again. It takes place in a moment of time twinkling of a moment. It takes place in the subconsciousness. Spirit of the Lord joins himself to our spirits. And there's an amazing change wrought. The germ is there of life begun and will continue. And the effects of that amazing change, all of God's grace, is that um, his eyes were enlightened into the knowledge of Christ. His eyes were enlightened spiritually to believe the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in the face of that one there on the cross, his visage was told by Isaiah was more marred than that of any man. His eyes were open to behold the divinity of this man. His eyes were opened. His conscience was convicted. These things go together.
This man, I take it that he, that he had been railing against him. I deserve this damnation. I am justly under the state as a serial killer. I deserve all this. This man hath done nothing amiss. This is God in our natures. Holy One. What a sinner I am in the face of that. And the lip of his soul was opened. It was opened in prayer. That wonderful prayer that emerged from this wicked sinner. Believed that this was indeed a king. Not just a political king, but a king at a highest level. Divine kingship. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. There's the evidence that, this, that the blessing of the Spirit has accrued to him. Notice now, before we go any further, there's always the danger when we come to look at what happened to this man, and it's all of the Spirit of God. That we say, well, it happened to him by the Spirit. Why is it that I have to wait for the Spirit also? It's all the question of election and so on that go along with it come into play. It's all the way that we can seek to absolve ourselves from responsibility. And say it's as it were, it's God's, it's up to God to do this. And what can I do? Nothing. Is that true? Yes and no. You can do nothing at all to save yourself. But remember that this man reflected, reflected open-mindedly upon what he had heard. That was his responsibility, and that is yours also, that is mine. like the Bereans, to be open-minded and search the scriptures concerning what we hear and to reflect on it seriously and prayerfully. It's not because he reflected that he was saved, that, he, that the blessing accrued to him. The only reason for that is that God in his grace, God's grace touched the soul. It wasn't because of what he had done, because of his reflection, but it was in his reflection. It was in his consideration of that word. It was in his entering into the responsibility of reflecting upon that word that had been set before him. It was in that process that he was saved, not because of, but in is entering into it. You see, responsibility, our responsibility doesn't go away. But it's all of God's, to God's glory, nevertheless, that our salvation accrues to us.
in Christ. But true responsibility must not be cast aside. Notice the question that he put. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And I missed out a word there, didn't I? It's the word Lord. And it's the word Lord in the sense of Jehovah. He was accepting that this was very God, a very God. The power of God's regenerating grace had brought that into being. This is very God of very God. Oh, how great is my sin. In the prayer, Lord, have mercy into the prayer about the kingdom. That prayer was answered by the Lord himself authoritatively this day Thou shalt be with me in paradise. <clears throat> he has authority to forgive sins. He has power to forgive sins. He delights in mercy. He does not uh, spurn the afflicted's cry. He is one who says, come unto me all and labor, and I will give you rest. He will not retain anger forever because he delights in mercy. This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And just a, a word or two there on that final answer. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And that happened in this man's experience. And that will happen in the experience of all who are found ultimately in Christ, leaning the weight of their never dying soul security upon his passion and finished work. We have souls that shall never die. We have most precious commodity there that must be secured, and where else can we go but to the very one to whom this poor sinner was directed on the cross? He has the power, he has the words of eternal life. A sudden change took place in this man, the power of God, same as with the centurion, who could say, certainly this was a righteous man. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that we would be enabled to reflect more closely on the events that took place on the cross of Calvary, 
and uh, on the events that were there round about that cross, on the wickedness of those who derided, catcalled, railed against the Christ of God. And that we would understand that there, but for the grace of God, go I. That we would be so ready to be found amongst them. Such is the wickedness and deceitfulness of our hearts. If thou didst not restrain us. We pray that thou would uh, enable us to see the miraculous way that the sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of the sinner are interwoven together. And nevertheless, the glory belongs entirely and exclusively to thee. That the responsibility to be closed in with Christ is ours. We pray thy blessing upon our reflection. We pray that thou take away anything that was amiss in our considerations. Receive us with the pardon of sin in Jesus' name. Amen.